0: section fourteen of the oxford book of american essays chosen by brander matthews this librivox recording is in the public domain section fourteen as we grow older i think we are less and less able to remember our dreams this is perhaps because the experience of youth is less dense and the empty spaces of the young consciousness are more hospitable to these airy visitants a few dreams of my later life stand out in strong relief but for the most part they blend in an indistinguishable mass and pass away with the actualities into a common oblivion i should say that they were more frequent with me than they used to be it seems to me that now i dream whole nights through and much more about the business of my waking life than formerly. As I earn my living by weaving a certain sort of dreams into literary form, it might be supposed that I would sometime dream of the personages in these dreams, but I cannot remember that I have ever done so. The two kinds of inventing, the voluntary and the involuntary, seem absolutely and finally distinct. Of the prophetic dreams which people sometimes have, I have mentioned the only one of mine which had any dramatic interest, but I have verified in my own experience the theory of Ribot, that approaching disease sometimes intimates itself in dreams of the disorder impending before it is otherwise declared in the organism. In actual sickness, I think that I dream rather less than in health i had a malarial fever when i was a boy and i had a sort of continuous dream in it that distressed me greatly it was of gliding down the schoolhouse stairs without touching my feet to the steps and this was indescribably appalling the anguish of mind that one suffers from the imaginary dangers of dreams is probably of the same quality as that inspired by real peril in waking a curious proof of this happened within my knowledge not many years ago one of the neighbor's children was coasting down a long hill with a railroad at the foot of it and as he neared the bottom an express train rushed round the curve the flagman ran forward and shouted to the boy to throw himself off his sled but he kept on and ran into the locomotive and was so hurt that he died his injuries however were to the spine and they were of a kind that rendered him insensible to pain while he lived he talked very clearly and calmly of his accident and when he was asked why he did not throw himself off his sled as the flagman bade him he said i thought it was a dream the reality had through the mental stress no doubt transmuted itself to the very substance of dreams and he had felt the same kind and quality of suffering as he would have done if he had been dreaming the norwegian poet and novelist Jornstern Jornston was at my house shortly after this happened and he was greatly struck by the psychological implications of the incident it seemed to mean for him all sorts of possibilities in the obscure realm where it cast a fitful light but such a glimmer soon fades and the darkness thickens round us again it is not with the blindfold sense of sleep that we shall ever find out the secret of life i fancy either in the dreams which seem personal to us each one or those universal dreams which we apparently share with the whole race of the race dream as i may call it there is one hardly less common than that dream of going about insufficiently clad which i have already mentioned and that is the dream of suddenly falling from some height and waking with a start the experience before the start is extremely dim and latterly i have condensed this dread almost as much as the preliminary passages of my burglar dream i am aware of nothing but an instance of danger and then comes the jar or jolt that wakens me upon the whole i find this a great saving of emotion and i do not know but there is a tendency as i grow older to shorten up the detail of what may be styled the conventional dream the dream which we have so often that it is like a story read before indeed the plots of dreams are not much more varied than the plots of romantic novels which are notoriously stale and hackneyed it would be interesting and possibly important if some observer would note the recurrence of this sort of dreams and classify their varieties i think we should all be astonished to find how few and slight the variations were if i come to speak of dreams concerning the dead it must be with a tenderness and awe that all who have had them will share with me nothing is more remarkable in them than the fact that the dead though they are dead yet live and are to our commerce with them quite like all other living persons we may recognize and they may recognize that they are no longer in the body but they are as verily living as we are this may be merely an effect from the doctrine of immortality which we all hold or have held yet i would fain believe that it may be something like proof of it no one really knows or can know but one may at least hope without offending science which indeed no longer frowns so darkly upon faith this persistence of life in those whom we mourn as dead may not be a witness of the fact that the consciousness cannot accept the notion of death at all and whatever crazy sorrow saith that we have never truly felt them lost sometimes those who have died come back in dreams as parts of a common life which seems never to have been broken the old circle is restored without a flaw but whether they do this or whether it is acknowledged between them and us that they have died and are now disembodied spirits, the effect of life is the same. Perhaps in those dreams they and we are alike disembodied spirits, and the soul of the dreamer, which so often seems to abandon the body to the animal, is then the conscious entity. The thing which the dreamer feels to be himself and is mingling with the souls of the departed on something like the terms which shall hereafter be constant i think very few of those who have lost their beloved have failed to receive some sign or message from them in dreams and often it is of deep and abiding consolation it may be that this is our anguish compelling the echo of love out of the darkness where nothing is but it may be that there is something there which answers to our throw with pity and with longing like our own again no one knows but in a matter impossible of definite solution i will not refuse the comfort which belief can give unbelief can be no gain and belief no loss but those dreams are so dear so sacred so interwoven with the finest and tenderest tissues of our being that one cannot speak of them freely or indeed more than most vaguely it is enough to say that one has had them and to know that almost every one else has had them too they seem to be among the universal dreams and a strange quality of them is that though they deal with a fact of universal doubt they are to my experience at least not nearly so fantastic or capricious as the dreams that deal with the facts of everyday life and with the affairs of people still in this world i do not know whether it is common to dream of faces or figures strange to our waking knowledge but occasionally i have done this i suppose it is much the same kind of invention that causes the person we dream of to say or do a thing unexpected to us but this is rather common and the creation of a novel aspect the physiognomy of a stranger in the person we dream of is rather rare in all my dreams i can recall but one presence of the kind i have never dreamed of any sort of monster foreign to my knowledge or even of any grotesque thing made up of elements familiar to it the grotesqueness has always been in the motive or circumstance of the dream i have very seldom dreamed of animals though once when i was a boy for a time after i had passed a cornfield where there were some bundles of snakes Written and knotted together in the cold of an early spring day i had dreams infested by like images of those loathsome reptiles i suppose that every one has had dreams of finding his way through unnameable filth and of feeding upon hideous carnage these are clearly the punishment of gluttony and are the fumes of a rebellious stomach i have heard people say they have sometimes dreamed of a thing and awakened from their dream and then fallen asleep and dreamed of the same thing but i believe that this is all one continuous dream that they did not really awaken but only dreamed that they awakened i have never had any such dream but at one time i had a recurrent dream which was so singular that i thought no one else had ever had a recurrent dream till i proved that it was rather common by starting the inquiry in the contributors club in the atlantic monthly when i found that great numbers of people have recurrent dreams my own recurrent dreams began to come during the first year of my consulate in venice where i had hoped to find the same kind of poetic dimness on the phases of american life which i wished to treat in literature as the distance in time would have given i should not wish any such dimness now but those were my romantic days and i was sorely baffled by its absence The disappointment began to haunt my nights as well as my days, and a dream repeated itself from week to week for a matter of eight or ten months to one effect. I dreamed that I had gone home to America, and that people met me and said, Why, you have given up your place, and I always answered, Certainly not. I haven't done at all what I mean to do there yet i am only here on my ten days leave i meant the ten days which a consul might take each quarter without applying to the department of state and then i would reflect how impossible it was that i should make the visit in that time i saw that i should be found out and dismissed from my office and publicly disgraced then suddenly i was not consul at venice and had not been but a consul at delhi in india and the distress i felt would all end in a splendid oriental phantasmagory of elephants and native princes with their retinues in procession which i suppose was mostly out of my reading of de quincey this dream with no variation that i can recall persisted till i broke it up by saying in the morning after it had recurred that I had dreamed that dream again, and so it began to fade away, coming less and less frequently, and at last ceasing altogether. I am rather proud of that dream. It is really my battle-horse among dreams, and I think I will ride away on it. From Impressions and Experiences by W. D. Howells, copyright 1896 by W. D. Howells. An idol of the honey-bee by John Burroughs. There is no creature with which man has surrounded himself that seems so much like a product of civilization, so much like the result of development on special lines and in special fields as the honey-bee. Indeed, a colony of bees with their neatness and love of order, their division of labor their public spiritedness their thrift their complex economies and their inordinate love of gain seems as far removed from a condition of rude nature as does a walled city or a cathedral town our native bee on the other hand the burly dozing humble bee affects one more like the rude untutored savage he has learned nothing from experience he lives from hand to mouth he luxuriates in time of plenty and he starves in times of scarcity he lives in a rude nest or in a hole in the ground and in small communities he builds a few deep cells or sacks in which he stores a little honey and bee-bread for his young but as a worker in wax he is of the most primitive and awkward the indian regarded the honey-bee as an ill omen she was the white man's fly. In fact, she was the epitome of the white man himself. She has the white man's craftiness, his industry, his architectural skill, his neatness and love of system, his foresight, and, above all, his eager miserly habits. The honeybee's great ambition is to be rich, to lay up great stores, to possess the sweet of every flower that blooms. She is more than provident. Enough will not satisfy her. She must have all she can get by hook or by crook. She comes from the oldest country, Asia, and thrives best in the most fertile and long-settled lands. Yet the fact remains that the honey-bee is essentially a wild creature and never has been and cannot be thoroughly domesticated its proper home is the woods and thither every new swarm counts on going and thither many do go in spite of the care and watchfulness of the beekeeper if the woods in any given locality are deficient in trees with suitable cavities the bees resort to all sorts of makeshifts they go into chimneys into barns and outhouses under stones into rocks and so forth several chimneys in my locality with disused flues are taken possession of by colonies of bees nearly every season one day while bee-hunting i developed a line that went toward a farmhouse where i had reason to believe no bees were kept i followed it up and questioned the farmer about his bees he said he kept no bees but that a swarm had taken possession of his chimney and another had gone under the clapboards in the gable end of his house he had taken a large lot of money out of both places the year before another farmer told me that one day his family had seen a number of bees examining a knot-hole in the side of his house the next day as they were sitting down to dinner their attention was attracted by a loud humming noise when they discovered a swarm of bees settling upon the side of the house and pouring into the knot hole in subsequent years other swarms came to the same place apparently every swarm of bees before it leaves the parent hive sends out exploring parties to look up the future home the woods and groves are searched through and through, and no doubt the privacy of many a squirrel and many a woodmouse is intruded upon. What cosy nooks and retreats they do spy out, so much more attractive than the painted hive in the garden, so much cooler in summer and so much warmer in winter. The bee is in the main an honest citizen she prefers legitimate to illegitimate business she is never an outlaw until her proper sources of supply fail she will not touch honey as long as honey yielding flowers can be found she always prefers to go to the fountainhead and dislikes to take her sweets at second hand but in the fall after the flowers have failed she can be tempted the bee hunter takes advantage of this fact He betrays her with a little honey. He wants to steal her stores, and he first encourages her to steal his, then follows the thief home with her booty. This is the whole trick of the bee-hunter. The bees never suspect his game, else by taking a circuitous route they could easily baffle him. But the honey-bee has absolutely no wit or cunning outside of her special gifts as a gatherer and storer, of honey she is a simple-minded creature and can be imposed upon by any novice yet it is not every novice that can find a bee-tree the sportsman may track his game to its retreat by the aid of his dog but in hunting the honey-bee one must be his own dog and track his game through an element in which it leaves no trail it is a task for a sharp quick eye and may test the resources of the best woodcraft one autumn when i devoted much time to this pursuit as the best means of getting at nature and the open-air exhilaration my eye became so trained that bees were nearly as easy to it as birds i saw and heard bees wherever i went one day standing on a street corner in a great city i saw above the trucks and the traffic a line of bees carrying off sweets from some grocery or confectionery shop one looks upon the woods with a new interest when he suspects they hold a colony of bees what a pleasing secret it is a tree with a heart of comb honey a decayed oak or maple with a bit of sicily or mount hymettus stowed away in its trunk or branches secret chambers where lies hidden the wealth of ten thousand little freebooters great nuggets and wedges of precious ore gathered with risk and labor from every field and wood about but if you would know the delights of bee-hunting and how many sweets such a trip yields besides honey come with me some bright warm late september or early october day it is the golden season of the year and any errand or pursuit that takes us abroad upon the hills or by the painted woods and along the amber-coloured streams at such a time is enough so with haversacks filled with grapes and peaches and apples and a bottle of milk for we shall not be home to dinner and armed with a compass a hatchet a pail and a box with a piece of comb honey neatly fitted into it any box the size of your hand with a lid will do nearly as well as the elaborate and ingenious contrivance of the regular bee-hunter we sally forth our course at first lies along the highway under the great chestnut trees whose nuts are just dropping then through an orchard and across a little creek thence gently rising through a long series of cultivated fields towards some high uplying land behind which rises a rugged wooded ridge or mountain the most sightly point in all this section behind this ridge for several miles the country is wild wooded and rocky and is no doubt the home of many wild swarms of bees what a gleeful uproar the robins cedar birds high holes and cow blackbirds make amid the black cherry trees as we pass along the raccoons too have been here after black cherries and we see their marks at various points several crows are walking about a newly sowed wheat field we pass through and we pause to note their graceful movements and glossy coats i have seen no bird walk the ground with just the same air the crow does it is not exactly pride there is no strut or swagger in it though perhaps just a little condescension it is the contented complacent and self-possessed gait of a lord over his domains all these acres are mine he says and all these crops men plough and sow for me and i stay here or go there and find life sweet and good wherever i am the hawk looks awkward and out of place on the ground the game birds hurry and skulk but the crow is at home and treads the earth as if there were none to molest or make him afraid the crows we have always with us but it is not every day or every season that one sees an eagle hence i must preserve the memory of one i saw the last day i went bee-hunting as i was labouring up the side of a mountain at the head of a valley the noble bird sprang from the top of a dry tree above me and came sailing directly over my head i saw him bend his eye down upon me and i could hear the low hum of his plumage as if the web of every quill in his great wings vibrated in his strong level flight i watched him as long as my eye could hold him when he was fairly clear of the mountain he began that sweeping spiral movement in which he climbs the sky up and up he went without once breaking his majestic poise till he appeared to sight some far-off alien geography when he bent his course thitherward and gradually vanished in the blue depths the eagle is a bird of large ideas he embraces long distances the continent is his home i never look upon one without emotion i follow him with my eye as long as i can i think of canada of the great lakes of the rocky mountains of the wild and sounding sea coast the waters are his and the woods and the inaccessible cliffs he pierces behind the veil of the storm and his joy is height and depth and vast spaces we go out of our way to touch at a spring run in the edge of the woods and are lucky to find a single scarlet lobelia lingering there it seems almost to light up the gloom with its intense bit of colour beside a ditch in a field beyond we find the great blue lobelia and near it amid weeds and wild grasses and purple asters the most beautiful of our fall flowers the fringed gentian what a rare and delicate almost aristocratic look the gentian has amid its coarse unkempt surroundings it does not lure the bee but it lures and holds every passing human eye if we strike through the corner of yonder woods where the ground is moistened by hidden springs and where there is a little opening amid the trees we shall find the closed gentian, A rare flower in this locality i had walked this way many times before i chanced upon its retreat and then i was following a line of bees i lost the bees but i got the gentians how curious this flower looks with its deep blue petals folded together so tightly a bud and yet a blossom it is the nun among our wild flowers a form closely veiled and cloaked the buccaneer Bumblebee sometimes strives to rifle it of its sweets i have seen the blossom with the bee entombed in it he had forced his way into the virgin corolla as if determined to know its secret but he had never returned with the knowledge he had gained after a refreshing walk of a couple of miles we reach a point where we will make our first trial a high stone wall that runs parallel with the wooded ridge referred to, and separated from it by a broad field. There are bees at work there on that golden rod, and it requires but little maneuvering to sweep one into our box. Almost any other creature rudely and suddenly arrested in its career, and clapped into a cage in this way, would show great confusion and alarm. THE BEE IS ALARMED FOR A MOMENT, BUT THE BEE HAS A PASSION STRONGER THAN ITS LOVE OF LIFE OR FEAR OF DEATH, NAMELY DESIRE FOR HONEY, NOT SIMPLY TO EAT, BUT TO CARRY HOME AS BOOTY. SUCH RAGE OF HONEY IN THEIR BOSOM BEATS, SAYS VIRGIL. IT IS QUICK TO CATCH THE SCENT OF HONEY IN THE BOX, AND AS QUICK TO FALL TO FILLING ITSELF. We now set the box down upon the wall and gently remove the cover. The bee is head and shoulders in one of the half-filled cells and is oblivious to everything else about it. Come rack, come ruin, it will die at work. We step back a few paces and sit down upon the ground so as to bring the box against the blue sky as a background. In two or three minutes the bee is seen rising slowly and heavily from the box it seems loath to leave so much honey behind and it marks the place well it mounts aloft in a rapidly increasing spiral surveying the near and minute objects first then the larger and more distant till having circled above the spot five or six times and taken all its bearings it darts away from home it is a good eye that holds fast to the bee till it is fairly off sometimes one's head will swim following it and often one's eye are put out by the sun this bee gradually drifts down the hill then strikes away toward a farmhouse half a mile away where i know bees are kept then we try another and another and the third bee much to our satisfaction goes straight towards the woods we could see the brown speck against the darker background for many yards. The regular bee-hunter professes to be able to tell a wild bee from a tame one by the color, the former, he says, being lighter, but there is no difference. They are both alike in color and in manner. Young bees are lighter than old, and that is all there is to it if a bee lived many years in the woods it would doubtless come to have some distinguishing marks but the life of a bee is only a few months at the farthest and no change is wrought in this brief time our bees are all soon back and more with them for we have touched the box here and there with the cork of a bottle of anise oil and this fragrant and pungent oil will attract bees half a mile or more when no flowers can be found this is the quickest way to obtain a bee it is a singular fact that when the bee first finds the hunter's box its first feeling is one of anger it is mad as a hornet its tone changes it sounds its shrill war-trumpet and darts to and fro and gives vent to its rage and indignation in no uncertain manner it seems to scent foul play at once it says here is robbery here is the spoil of some hive may be my own and its blood is up but its ruling passion soon comes to the surface its avarice gets the better of its indignation and it seems to say well I had better take possession of this and carry it home. So after many feints and approaches and dartings off with a loud angry hum, as if it would none of it, the bee settles down and fills itself. It does not entirely cool off and get soberly to work till it has made two or three trips home with its booty. When other bees come, even if all from the same swarm, they quarrel and dispute over the box and clip and dart at each other like bantam cocks apparently the ill feeling which the sight of the honey awakens is not one of jealousy or rivalry but wrath a bee will usually make three or four trips from the hunter's box before it brings back a companion i suspect the bee does not tell its fellows what it has found but that they smell out the secret. It doubtless bears some evidence upon its feet or proboscis that it has been upon honeycomb and not upon flowers, and its companions take the hint and follow, arriving always many seconds behind. Then the quantity and quality of the booty would also betray it, no doubt also there are plenty of gossips about a hive that note and tell everything oh did you see that peggy mell came in a few moments ago in great haste and one of the upstairs packers says she was loaded till she groaned with apple-blossom honey which she deposited and then rushed off again like mad apple-blossom honey in october fee fi fo fum i smell something let's after in about half an hour we have three well-defined lines of bees established two to farmhouses and one to the woods and our box is being rapidly depleted of its honey about every fourth bee goes to the woods and now that they have learned the way thoroughly they do not make the long preliminary whirl above the box but start directly from it the woods are rough and dense and the hill steep and we do not like to follow the line of bees until we have tried at least to settle the problem as to the distance they go into the woods whether the tree is on this side of the ridge or into the depth of the forest on the other side so we shut up the box when it is full of bees and carry it about three hundred yards along the wall from which we are operating when liberated the bees as they always will in such cases Go off in the same directions they have been going they do not seem to know that they have been moved but other bees have followed our scent and it is not many minutes before a second line to the woods is established this is called cross-lining the bees the new line makes a sharp angle with the other line and we know at once that the tree is only a few rods into the woods The two lines we have established form two sides of a triangle of which the wall is the base. At the apex of the triangle, or where the two lines meet in the woods, we are sure to find the tree. We quickly follow up these lines, and where they cross each other, on the side of the hill, we scan every tree closely. I pause at the foot of an oak and examine a hole near the root now the bees are in this tree and their entrance is on the upper side near the ground not two feet from the hole i peer into and yet so quiet and secret is their going and coming that i fail to discover them and pass on up the hill failing in this direction i return to the oak again and then perceive the bees going out in a small crack in the tree the bees do not know they are found out and that the game is in our hands and are as oblivious of our presence as if we were ants or crickets the indications are that the swarm is a small one and the store of honey trifling in taking up a bee tree it is usual first to kill or stupefy the bees with the fumes of burning sulphur or with tobacco smoke. But this course is impracticable on the present occasion, so we boldly and ruthlessly assault the tree with an axe we have procured. At the first blow the bee set up a loud buzzing, but we have no mercy, and the side of the cavity is soon cut away, and the interior, with its white-yellow mass of Comb honey is exposed and not a bee strikes a blow in defence of its all this may seem singular but it has always been my experience when a swarm of bees are thus rudely assaulted with an axe they evidently think the end of the world has come and like true misers as they are each one seizes as much of the treasure as it can hold in other words they all fall to and gorge themselves with honey and calmly await the issue while in this condition they make no defence and will not sting unless taken hold of in fact they are as harmless as flies bees are always to be managed with boldness and decision any half-way measures any timid poking about any feeble attempts to reach their honey are sure to be quickly resented the popular notion that bees have a special antipathy toward certain persons and a liking for certain others has only this fact at the bottom of it they will sting a person who is afraid of them and goes skulking and dodging about and they will not sting a person who faces them boldly and has no dread of them they are like dogs the way to disarm a vicious dog is to show him you do not fear him it is his turn to be afraid then i never had any dread of bees and am seldom stung by them i have climbed up into a large chestnut that contained a swarm in one of its cavities and chopped them out with an axe being obliged at times to pause and brush the bewildered bees from my hands and face and not been stung once i have chopped a swarm out of an apple-tree in june and taken out the cards of honey and arranged them in a hive and then dipped out the bees with a dipper and taken the whole home with me in pretty good condition with scarcely any opposition on the part of the bees in reaching your hand into the cavity to detach and remove the comb you are pretty sure to get stung for when you touch the business end of a bee it will sting even though its head be off but the bee carries the antidote to its own poison the best remedy for bee sting is honey and when your hands are besmeared with honey as they are sure to be on such occasions the wound is scarcely more painful than the prick of a pin assault your bee-tree then boldly with your axe and you will find that when the honey is exposed every bee has surrendered and the whole swarm is cowering in helpless bewilderment and terror our tree yields only a few pounds of honey not enough to have lasted the swarm till january but no matter, we have the less burden to carry. In the afternoon, we go nearly half a mile further along the ridge to a cornfield that lies immediately in front of the highest point of the mountain. The view is superb. The ripe autumn landscape rolls away to the east, cut through by the great placid river. In the extreme north, the wall of the Catskills stands out clear and strong while in the south the mountains of the highlands bound the view the day is warm and the bees are very busy there in that neglected corner of the field rich in asters fleabane and goldenrod the corn has been cut and upon a stout but a few rods from the woods which here drop quickly down from the precipitous heights we set up our bee-box touched again with the pungent oil in a few moments a bee has found it she comes up to leeward following the scent on leaving the box she goes straight towards the woods more bees quickly come and it is not long before the line is well established now we have recourse to the same tactics we employed before and move along the ridge to another field to get our cross line but the bees still go in almost the same direction they did from the corn stout the tree is then either on the top of the mountain or on the other or west side of it we hesitate to make the plunge into the woods and seek to scale those precipices for the eye can plainly see what is before us as the afternoon sun gets lower the bees are seen with wonderful distinctness they fly towards and under the sun and are in a strong light, while the near woods, which form the background, are in deep shadow. They look like large, luminous motes. Their swiftly vibrating, transparent wings surround their bodies with a shining nimbus that makes them visible for a long distance. They seem magnified many times. We see them bridge the little gulf between us and the woods then rise up over the tree tops with their burdens swerving neither to the right hand nor to the left it is almost pathetic to see them labor so climbing the mountain and unwittingly guiding us to their treasures when the sun gets down so that his direction corresponds exactly with the course of the bees we make the plunge it proves even harder climbing than we had anticipated the mountain is faced by a broken and irregular wall of rock up which we pull ourselves slowly and cautiously by main strength in half an hour the perspiration streaming from every pore we reach the the summit the trees here are all small a second growth and we are soon convinced the bees are not here then down we go to the other side clambering down the rocky stairways till we reach quite a broad plateau that forms something like the shoulder of the mountain on the brink of this there are many large hemlocks and we scan them closely and rap upon them with our axe but not a bee is seen or heard we do not seem as near the tree as we were in the fields below yet if some divinity would only whisper the fact to us we are within a few rods of the coveted prize which is not in one of the large hemlocks or oaks that absorb our attention but in an old stub or stump not six feet high and which we have seen and passed several times without giving it a thought we go farther down the mountain and beat about to the right and left and get entangled in brush and arrested by precipices and finally as the day is nearly spent give up the search and leave the woods quite baffled but resolved to return on the morrow the next day we come back and commence operations at an opening in the woods well down on the side of the mountain where we gave up the search our box is soon swarming with the eager bees and they go back toward the summit we have passed we follow back and establish a new line where the ground will permit then another and still another yet the riddle is not solved one time we are south them then north then the bees get up through the trees and we cannot tell where they go but after much searching and after the mystery seems rather to deepen than to clear up we chance to pause beside the old stump a bee comes out of a small opening like that made by ants in decayed wood rubs its eyes and examines its antennae as bees always do before leaving their hive then takes flight at the same instant several bees come by us loaded with our honey and settle home with that peculiar low complacent buzz of the well-filled insect here then is our idol our bit of virgil and theocritus and a decayed stump of a hemlock tree we could tear it open with our hands and a bear would find it an easy prize and a rich one too for we take from it fifty pounds of excellent honey the bees have been here many years and have of course sent out swarm after swarm into the wilds they have protected themselves against the weather and strengthened their shaky habitation by copious use of wax when a bee-tree is thus taken up in the middle of the day of course a good many bees are away from home and have not heard the news when they return and find the ground flowing with honey and piles of bleeding combs lying about they apparently do not recognize the place their first instinct is to fall to and fill themselves this done their next thought is to carry it home so they rise up slowly through the branches of the trees till they have attained an altitude that enables them to survey the scene when they seem to say why this is home and down they come again beholding the wreck and ruins once more they still think there is some mistake and get up a second or third time and then drop back pitifully as before it is the most pathetic sight of all the surviving and bewildered bees struggling to save a few drops of their wasted treasures presently if there is another swarm in the woods robber bees appear you may know them by their saucy chiding devil-may-care hum it is an ill wind that blows nobody good and they make the most of the misfortune of their neighbours and thereby pave the way for their own ruin the hunter marks their course and the next day looks them up on this occasion the day was hot and the honey very fragrant and a line of bees was soon established south-southwest though there was much refuse honey in the old stub and though little golden rills trickled down the hill from it and the near branches and saplings were besmeared with it where we wiped our murderous hands yet not a drop was wasted it was a feast to which not only honey-bees came but bumble-bees wasps hornets flies ants the bumble-bees which at this season are hungry vagrants with no fixed place of abode Would gorge themselves then creep beneath the bits of empty comb or fragments of bark and pass the night and renew the feast next day the bumble-bee is an insect of which the bee-hunter sees much there are all sorts and sizes of them they are dull and clumsy compared with the honey-bee attracted in the fields by the bee-hunter's box they will come up and wind on the scent and blunder into it in the most stupid lubberly fashion the honey-bees that licked up our leavings in the old stub belonged to a swarm as it proved about half a mile further down the ridge and a few days afterward fate overtook them and their stores in turn became the prey of another swarm in the vicinity which also tempted providence and were overwhelmed. The first mentioned swarm I had lined from several points and was following up the clue over rocks and through gullies when I came to where a large hemlock had been felled a few years before, and a swarm taken from a cavity near the top of it, fragments of the old comb, yet to be seen a few yards away stood another short squatty hemlock and i said my bees ought to be there as i paused near it i noticed where the tree had been wounded with an axe a couple of feet from the ground many years before the wound had partially grown over but there was an opening there that i did not see at the first glance i was about to pass on when a bee passed me making that peculiar shrill discordant hum that a bee makes when bee smeared with honey i saw it alight in the partially closed wound and crawl home then came others and others little bands and squads of them heavily freighted with honey from the box the tree was about twenty inches through and hollow at the butt or from the axe mark down this space the bees had completely filled with honey with an axe we cut away the outer ring of live wood and exposed the treasure despite the utmost care we wounded the comb so that little rills of the golden liquid issued from the root of the tree and trickled down the hill the other bee tree in the vicinity to which i have referred we found one warm november day in less than half an hour after entering the woods it also was a hemlock that stood in a niche in a wall of hoary moss-covered rocks thirty feet high the tree hardly reached to the top of the precipice the bees entered a small hole at the root which was seven or eight feet from the ground the position was a striking one never did apiary have a finer outlook or more rugged surroundings a black wood-embraced lake lay at our feet the long panorama of the catskills filled the far distance and the more broken outlines of the sharagonk range filled the rear on every hand were precipices and a wild confusion of rocks and trees the cavity occupied by the bees was about three feet and a half long and eight or ten inches in diameter with an axe we cut away one side of the tree and laid bare its curiously wrought heart of honey it was a most pleasing sight what winding and devious ways the bees had through their palace what great masses and blocks of snow-white comb there were where it was sealed up presenting that slightly dented uneven surface it looked like some precious ore when we carried a large pailful of it out of the woods it seemed still more like ore your native bee hunter predicates the distance of the tree by the time the bee occupies in making its first trip but this is no certain guide YOU ARE ALWAYS SAFE IN CALCULATING THAT THE TREE IS INSIDE OF A MILE, AND YOU NEED NOT AS A RULE LOOK FOR YOUR BEE'S RETURN UNDER TEN MINUTES. ONE DAY I PICKED UP A BEE IN AN OPENING IN THE WOODS AND GAVE IT HONEY, AND IT MADE THREE TRIPS TO MY BOX WITH AN INTERVAL OF ABOUT TWELVE MINUTES BETWEEN THEM. IT RETURNED ALONE EACH TIME. THE TREE WHICH I AFTERWARD FOUND WAS ABOUT HALF A MILE DISTANT in lining bees through the woods the tactics of the hunter are to pause every twenty or thirty rods lop away the branches or cut down the trees and set the bees to work again if they still go forward he goes forward also and repeats his observations till the tree is found or till the bees turn and come back upon the trail Then he knows he has passed the tree and he retraces his steps to a convenient distance and tries again and thus quickly reduces the space to be looked over till the swarm is traced home. On one occasion in a wild rocky wood where the surface alternated between deep gulfs and chasms filled with thick heavy growths of timber and sharp precipitous rocky ridges like a tempest-tossed sea, "'I carried my bees directly under their tree "'and set them to work from a high-exposed ledge of rocks "'not thirty feet distant. "'One would have expected them, under such circumstances, "'to have gone straight home, "'as there were but few branches intervening. "'But they did not. "'They laboured up through the trees "'and attained an altitude above the woods "'as if they had miles to travel.' and thus baffled me for hours. Bees will always do this. They are acquainted with the woods only from the top side and from the air above. They recognize home only by landmarks here, and in every instance they rise aloft to take their bearings. Think how familiar to them the topography of the forest summits must be, an umbrageous sea or plain where every mark and point is known. Another curious fact is that generally you will get track of a bee-tree sooner when you are half a mile from it than when you are only a few yards. Bees, like us human insects, have little faith in the near at hand. They expect to make their fortune in the distant field. They are lured by the remote and the difficult, and hence overlook the flower and the sweet at their very door on several occasions i have unwittingly set my box within a few paces of a bee-tree and waited long for bees without getting them when on removing to a distant field or opening in the woods i have got a clue at once i have a theory that when bees leave the hive unless there is some special attraction in some other direction they generally go against the wind they would thus have the wind with them when they returned home heavily laden and with these little navigators the difference is an important one with a full cargo a stiff headwind is a great hindrance but fresh and empty-handed they can face it with more ease virgil says bees bear gravel stones as ballast but their only ballast is their honey-bag hence when i go bee-hunting I prefer to get to windward of the woods in which the swarm is supposed to have refuge bees like the milkman like to be near a spring they do water their honey especially in a dry time the liquid is then of course thicker and sweeter and will bear diluting hence old bee hunters look for bee trees along creeks and near spring runs in the woods i once found a tree a long distance from any water and the honey had a peculiar bitter flavour imparted to it i was convinced by rain-water sucked from the decayed and spongy hemlock tree in which the swarm was found in cutting into the tree the north side of it was found to be saturated with water like a spring which ran out in big drops and had a bitter flavour the bees had thus found a spring or cistern in their own house bees are exposed to many hardships and many dangers winds and storms prove as disastrous to them as to other navigators black spiders lie in wait for them as do brigands for travellers one day as i was looking for a bee amid some goldenrod i spied one partly concealed under a leaf Its baskets were full of pollen, and it did not move. On lifting up the leaf I discovered that a hairy spider was ambushed there, and had the bee by the throat. The vampire was evidently afraid of the bee's sting, and was holding it by the throat till quite sure of his death. Virgil speaks of the painted lizard, perhaps a species of salamander, as an enemy of the honeybee we have no lizard that destroys the bee but our tree toad ambushed among the apple and cherry blossoms snaps them up wholesale quick as lightning that subtle but clammy tongue darts forth and the unsuspecting bee is gone virgil also accuses the titmouse and the woodpecker of preying upon the bees and our kingbird has been charged with the like crime but the latter devours only the drones. The workers are either too small and quick for it, or else it dreads their sting. Virgil, by the way, had little more than a child's knowledge of the honeybee. There is little fact and much fable in his fourth Georgic. If he had ever kept bees himself, or even visited an apiary, it is hard to see how he could have believed that the bee in its flight abroad carried a gravel stone for ballast and as when empty barks on billows float with sandy ballast sailors trim the boat so bees bear gravel stones whose poising weight steers through the whistling wings their steady flight or that when two colonies made war upon each other they issued forth from their hives led by their kings and fought in the air strewing the ground with the dead and dying hard hailstones lie not thicker on the plain nor shaken oaks such showers of acorns rain it is quite certain he had never been bee-hunting if he had we should have had a fifth georgic yet he seems to have known that bees sometimes escaped to the woods nor bees are lodged in hives alone but found in chambers of their own beneath the ground their vaulted roofs are hung in pumices and in the rotten trunks of hollow trees wild honey is as near like tame as wild bees are like their brothers in the hive the only difference is that wild honey is flavored with your adventure which makes it a little more delectable than the domestic article from pipacton by john burroughs copyright eighteen eighty one eighteen ninety five and nineteen oh nine by john burroughs end of section fourteen